The growth of the United States west of the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean expanded rapidly in a short period of 50 years from 1803 to 1853. In that brief span of time, the United States acquired the Louisiana Territory from France, Utah, New Mexico, and California territories in a war with Mexico in 1846, and the Gadsden Purchase by treaty with Mexico in 1853. With the acquisition of these new territories came the settlers to live on the newly acquired lands. Farmers, miners, investors, storekeepers, all moved west. The only thing that did not keep abreast with the westward movement was communication. People who lived in Oregon, California, and the New Mexico territories seemed to lose touch with the East Coast. Westerners usually received news of what was happening on the East Coast six to nine months after it had happened. Californians led the way in protesting to the Congress of the United States to do something to rectify this situation. They wanted the Congress to appropriate monies to establish a mail route that would bridge this communication gap. And, in 1856, a petition was signed by some 75,000 Californians and was sent to Washington, D.C. Californians meant business, too. Already there was talk that if they couldn't keep in contact with the East Coast and have their interests known in the nation's capital, what they would do would be to form a Pacific Republic. High-ranking men in the state government of California, including Governor J. Neely Johnson, were making plans with people living in the Oregon country to secede from the Union and form this Pacific Republic, a government separate from the United States. This excursion in history now explores the attempt of John Butterfield to bridge this gap from east to west with his Overland Mail Company. With California and every other western state and territory putting pressure on the government in Washington, D.C. to establish an overland mail route to the west coast, the Congress responded. Yet, no sooner was the bill introduced into Congress to create an overland mail route to the west coast than a debate sprung up which seemed would defeat any attempts of the government to subsidize a mail route west. Eastern states insisted that such an expenditure of government funds was totally unwarranted. It was a waste of good money. Then the sectional controversy sprung up. Nerves in the United States between the North and the South over the slavery issue had reached what seemed to be a fever pitch. So now the major argument was over which way the stage route was to go. Was it to go over the central route through South Pass? Northerners said yes. It was the only logical way. Southerners, however, felt that the proposed all-weather route through El Paso and Fort Yuma would be more practical. There was no backing down on this point by either side, since both believed that the railroads would eventually follow the stagecoach route. Further, it was felt that if the North and the South did split apart and go their separate ways, the section of the country which controlled the mail routes to the West would probably have a better opportunity to get the Western states and territories under their control. As the debates between the Northerners and the Southerners raged on in the House of Representatives and the Senate, Western congressmen devised a bill which they hoped would obscure sectional controversies. They came up with a bill which would allow the Postmaster General of the United States to let the contract for mail service between St. Louis, Missouri and San Francisco, California. The contract 
which was to be let by the Postmaster General, would be awarded to the person or persons who submitted a successful bid for carrying the mail. The solution seemed to have worked, as the bill passed both houses of the 34th Congress by a substantial majority on March the 3rd, 1857. The Postmaster General in 1857 was Aaron V. Brown, and he now found himself elevated to a position of unique importance by this act of Congress, for his was the sole decision as to what route was to be followed. On April the 20th, 1857, the Post Office Department advertised for bids for the great overland mail contract. The trip for the mail was to be made in 25 days, or less, in coaches or springed wagons that could carry passengers as well as mail. The coaches were to run twice a week, Monday and Thursday, with the mail leaving from San Francisco for Missouri as well as from Missouri to San Francisco. Furthermore, the government would subsidize the venture to the tune of $600,000 per year for the successful bidder. Postmaster General Brown's choice of the nine bids that were submitted was not at all difficult, as one bidder stood out head and shoulders above all the others. A syndicate of prominent men who had experience in the stagecoach business on the East Coast and who had money enough of their own to invest in this venture to get things going got the contract. The syndicate was headed by John Butterfield of Utica, New York. His associates were William Dinsmore and William F. Fargo, both big names in the stage line business. Butterfield, who was 56 years old at the time he embarked on this adventure, was well respected on the East Coast as a leading stagecoacher, for it was he who founded the American Express Company. He was an imposing figure of a man with a broad, square face and a massive frame, but he was best remembered for his dress. He was usually clad in a frock coat, had his pantaloons tucked into his high-top boots, wore a linen duster, and had a wide-awake hat on the top of his head. Postmaster General Brown signed the agreement with Butterfield on September 16, 1857. It was one of the largest contracts for land mail services ever given to that time, and according to the agreement, the mail service was to begin within one year of the signing of the agreement. This meant that Butterfield had only 365 days to put his vast operation into effect. The route Butterfield had selected for the mail would start from Tipton, Missouri, and run to Fort Smith, Arkansas. From there, the route headed westward to El Paso, to Fort Yuma, to Los Angeles, and thence to San Francisco. It seemed that Postmaster General Brown agreed with the Southerners that the best all-weather route to the West was the Southern route. Northern protests rocked the nation when the news was released as to which way the stage route was to run. Northerners demanded to know why this route, through impassable deserts, was chosen when the central route was hundreds of miles shorter. But Postmaster General Brown stood his grounds by simply saying that it was his best judgment that the most desirable route was the one that he had chosen. While the politicians, newspapers, and Easterners argued the merits of Brown's decision, Butterfield was busily working, putting together the thousand crucial loose ends of things in order to have the mail route operational by September of 1858. The eastern terminus of the stage line was set at Tipton, Missouri, 
The reason for this was that it was the end of the line of the Pacific Railroad. It would be from here that the stages would have to begin their 2,812-mile trek to San Francisco. The first thing Butterfield did was to divide the territory into divisions. There was the Eastern Division and the Western Division, with El Paso the dividing point. Then, these two major divisions were split into smaller segments. Experienced men were now selected for the job of superintendents, and they in turn recruited gangs of men to bridge streams, level roads, remove boulders, and construct the 200 stations, which would be scattered along the route. Furthermore, herders were needed to care for the stock of mules and horses which were selected by the company to pull the stages. Along with that, Butterfield had to hire harness makers and blacksmiths. Besides busying himself with all of this, Butterfield next had to purchase freight and tanker wagons, which would be used to distribute hay and water to the areas where the land was barren. Next, 250 Concord coaches were purchased to carry the mail and passengers. The Concord coaches were the most elegant and beautiful coaches ever beheld in the West. Their oval-shaped bodies were painted red or dark green and were suspended on leather straps known as thoroughbraces. Nine passengers could crowd themselves into the coach and many more could find a place to sit on the roof of the stage as well. On the side of each coach, in large letters was painted, Overland Mail Company. Butterfield and his partners spent well over $1 million on this project before it went into service. The men who were hired to work for the stage line were selected with great care. Some men were hired as conductors, whose job it was to accompany each coach. Each man was carefully chosen for his sobriety and endurance, for he had to survive 500 miles of jolting travel at a time. His major function was to accompany the mail on each coach, as he was responsible for it over his division. The mail pouches were never left unguarded by a conductor from the time he took possession of them until he turned them over to the next conductor. Another function he served was to blow a small brass bugle as the stage approached a station. This blast on the bugle served to economize on time by enabling station masters to prepare for the changing of horses and for the preparation of meals. But the most sought-after individual by Butterfield were the whips. These were the drivers of the stages, and it would be these men who would capture the popular imagination of the young and old of each generation who studied history. The drivers were experienced men who could handle a team of six horses. Most of the drivers were young and filled with self-confidence. Besides being robust in manner, they were probably best remembered for their use of profanity when it suited their purpose to get the teams moving. Yet, beneath this rollicking, rough exterior laid a sense of solid responsibility, which made them the type of men that John Butterfield wanted. He would hire no others, for these were the kind of drivers who could flick a fly off a lead horse's flank with a 12-foot bullwhip while they were at full gallop. When the one year was up, it was time for Butterfield to put his stages in motion. On the crisp, clear morning of September the 16th, 1858, John Butterfield and Waterman L. Ormsby, a correspondent of the New York Herald, 
and who was the only through passenger going all the way to San Francisco, swung aboard the Pacific Railroad train at St. Louis, Missouri, with two bags of mail. The train pulled out promptly at 8 a.m., and for the next 160 miles, the route west was as smooth and gentle as could be expected on the train. The Pacific Railroad ended at Tipton, Missouri, and it took about nine minutes to transfer the mail and passengers to the waiting Butterfield Overland stage. Then, at about 6.15 p.m., John Butterfield, Jr., who was the first driver, yelled, Yee-haw! Giddy up there! And with a pop of his whip, the coach lurched forward into motion, heading westward toward the setting sun. The Overland Mail was on its way. In the background there could be heard the faint cheers of the few curious people who had gathered to see the first stage off. As the westbound stage left Tipton, the road for the first few miles was fair and level as it went across the smooth prairies. Here and there a passenger on the stage could see what he called traveling hotels. These, of course, were the large covered wagons in which the owner and his family would immigrate from place to place, traveling by daytime and camping near the wood, water, and grass at night. About seven miles from Tipton, the stage wheeled up in fine style to a place called Shackelford's. There, a change of horses already harnessed was made, and a meal was waiting for the passengers to eat. It seemed as if one had just enough time to gulp down some food before he was hustled back onto the coach and everything was in motion once more. From Shackelford's, the road seemed to go uphill for the next 13 miles, which was covered in an hour and 45 minutes. At the top of the hill was Mulholland Station, where new horses, ready and harnessed, were exchanged for the noble steeds that had just pulled them there. The work took but a few minutes before the stage was moving again. The story was the same all the way down the line, from Mulholland's to Burns Station, 16 miles away, and then on to Warsaw, which was the county seat of Benton County on the Osage River. Each time as the stage approached a station, the conductor blew his horn to announce to the station master the arrival of the mail. It was 3 a.m. when the stage pulled out of Warsaw and headed toward Bailey's Station, 11 miles away. The road out of Warsaw was in complete darkness as it ran through a dense forest. Because of this pitch darkness, a man on horseback with a lantern rode ahead of the stage so the driver would know which way the road ran. Ten miles and an hour and a half later brought the stage to Quincy, where the stage stopped long enough for the passengers to have some breakfast, freshen up, and stretch their legs. As soon as the kinks had been worked out of everyone, the stage was on its way once more. Fourteen miles down the road was Yost Station, 16 miles further was Boulevards, 11 miles more was Smith's, and 20 miles beyond that brought the stage to Springfield, Missouri. It was now quarter past three in the afternoon of Friday, September the 17th, and the stage was already ahead of its schedule, as according to the timetable it was not due into Springfield until 7.45 a.m. on Saturday morning. The ride to Springfield had been rough, fatiguing, but rather pleasant, as the coach rode ran over smooth prairies and passed vast fields of corn, tobacco, and wild mustard. The town of Springfield was a flourishing community of about 2,000 people.
It had several churches and a branch of the State Bank of Missouri. When the stage rolled up to a stop, there was quite a bit of excitement, as many of the town folk had gathered to see the arrival of the first overland mail stage, and it seemed like everybody was congratulating everybody else on the success of this venture. What seemed to impress almost everyone was the time that had been made from Tipton to Springfield, as it was the quickest time ever made by any stage. The stay in Springfield was just long enough to change the stagecoach and the horses before things were rolling westward once more. Beyond Springfield, the road became dusty, bumpy, and hilly. Nevertheless, before morning broke over the horizon, the stage had passed through Ashmore's, Smith's, Couch's, and Harburn's stations. On the morning of Saturday the 18th, the stage arrived at Callahan Station, where there was a brief pause for breakfast. While the passengers ate, the stage was greased, horses were changed, and, in an incredibly short space of time, the stage was on its way to Fayetteville, Arkansas. The route to Fayetteville rose over steep and rugged hills, but despite this, the stage arrived at Fayetteville 22 hours and 13 minutes ahead of its schedule. Once out of Fayetteville, the stage ran over a smooth road for some 14 miles before it came to Park Station. Here a team of mules was put on the coach in anticipation of crossing the dreaded Ozark Range, as the road would become steep, rugged, jagged, rough, mountainous, and one wishes he had more expressive words in the English language to describe how terrifying the route was through the Ozark Mountains. As the ascent up the mountains took place, it seemed as if the animals would tear themselves apart as they tugged and pulled the stage along a craggy road. Furthermore, it was felt as if the coach would be shaken to pieces, and the passengers for the most part felt that they were being disemboweled on the spot. The hard-tugging team finally pulled the coach to the top, and then with the aid of brakes and drags, the stage finally got down the other side of the mountain pass. At Brody's station, fresh horses were taken on, and the coach headed toward Fort Smith, Arkansas. To get to Fort Smith, the stage had to cross the Arkansas River on a flatboat. This was done at Van Buren's Crossing, which had been named after the 8th President of the United States. It was 2 a.m. on Sunday morning, the 19th of September, when the stage arrived at Fort Smith. It was a thriving community of about 2,500 inhabitants, and it seemed as if the entire town was out to meet the stage, even though it was in the wee hours of the morning. An hour and a half was consumed at Fort Smith, as the mail had to be rearranged, the coach examined and checked over, the horses changed, hands to be shaken, and of course, freshening up had to be done by the passengers. Once out of Fort Smith, a passenger might have a chance to stretch out in the coach, as the route became rather a wilderness, and not too many passengers traveled beyond Fort Smith anyway. As dawn broke on the morning of September 19th, the stage was about 16 miles on the other side of Fort Smith and approaching Skellyville Station, which was located in Indian Territory. Even though it was time for breakfast, the stage did not stop for eating purposes, only for a coach check and a change of horses. The passengers ate a meal which had been prepared back at Fort Smith and was packed in a basket. It consisted of bread, cold cuts, and a slug of whiskey with which to wash it down. Even if this meal sounds bad, once the traveler ate it, it would be a memory that would cling to him, as it would be the last civilized meal he would get between Fort Smith, Arkansas and Fort Belknap, Texas. 
The drinking water along the way was something else. It was as wet as any water was, but unless the passenger was prepared for the changes in the microbes found in the water from place to place along the route, his system would suffer with a case of dysentery. To kill these microbes, most travelers would always mix some whiskey with their water for purification purposes naturally. By the night of September 19th, the stage was at Blackburn Station, which was about 60 miles from the Red River. And if the moon made its majestic appearance over the vast plain, the passenger would behold a breathtaking sight. After leaving Blackburn Station, the road worsened, and the passenger would feel himself begin to bounce about the coach. From his seat, he would be lifted into the air until his head would strike the top of the coach with a resounding thud. Then with a lurch, he would strike the other side of the coach, and next he would meet the seat of the stage as he was coming down, and the stage was going up. It took some time to get accustomed to the jolting over the rough roads, the rocks, and the log bridges, but get used to it, the passenger would. And even though the passengers did not realize it at the time, it was an exciting adventure. Finally, the stage reached Colbert's Ferry on the Red River, which was the boundary between the Indian country and Texas. It was Monday, the 20th of September, and the stage was running 34 hours ahead of its schedule. Since the stage was ahead of time, many station masters were not ready for it, and in many cases, this delayed the stage for the better part of an hour, while a team was harnessed and made ready to go. Delays increased after they crossed the Red River and began traversing mile after mile of the Texas landscape. Whereas during the first part of the journey, stations were fairly frequent and fresh horses were waiting, now the stations were further apart, or in many cases, were not yet even built. Horses and mules used in this part of the country were unbroken and fought wildly against being hitched to the coach. In other places, the stock had yet to arrive, so drivers found themselves forced to take spare horses along, changing them when they felt the hitched animals were tired. The route across Texas varied greatly. At first there were rolling prairies, covered with fine grasses and with not a tree in sight. Then, too, the stage would cross a number of creek beds which were dry as a bone in the summer, but which ran wild during the rainy season. All along the way the traveler could see cattle grazing here and there over what seemed to be a boundless sea of hills. The stage rolled on and on, from Colbert's Ferry to Sherman, Texas, from Sherman, Texas to Gainesville, and from Gainesville to Jacksboro. All along the way, the stage stations were still under construction or still in tents. Those that had been completed were built of rough logs laid together, and the cracks were filled with mud. The station house was about 20 feet square and had one room. Meals were served on boxes or inverted pails, while one sat on nature's chair. There were no plates, and meals were usually served out of tin cups, which seemed to be used for everything. The meal consisted of a kind of bread, baked on coals, with each person breaking off his chunk and plastering butter on it with his pocket knife. Furthermore, the passengers never bothered to question what the ingredient was that went into the making of the meal. They just closed their eyes and ate, and were advised to hurry up and eat the stuff before the chickens got it. Once underway from Jacksboro and on the rolling plain, the traveler would now see some mesquite timber. It was sort of a cross between a crabapple tree and a scrub oak, and seldom grew larger than a respectable gooseberry bush. 
Finally, on Wednesday, the 22nd of September, at 5.25 a.m., the stage, which was being pulled by some exceedingly stubborn mules, arrived at Fort Belknap, located on the banks of the Brazos River. It was a neat town of about 150 people. It had several stores, a billiard saloon, and a post office. But before a person could extend his observation, the stage was off and rolling again. For the next 40 miles, the plain, which looked so sterile, seemed to sprout clumps of black oak trees. Further on down the way, weeds and coarse grasses were seen, but hardly a house or cultivated field ever crossed the eyes of the beguiled and weary traveler. From Fort Belknap, the stage ran westward toward Fort Shadburn. Now the trail showed a slight inclination as about midway between the two forts, the Abercrombie Range of Mountains, rises from the plains to a height of nearly 2,000 feet. Abercrombie Peak itself had a summit of bare rocks which made it look like it was the work of a stonemason. The rains had washed away the soil and had thus left the rocks in this manner. As the stage approached the peak, it looked much like the turrets and abutments of a lofty fortress. Passengers could see the peak for 30 or 40 miles ahead of them, and yet it looked as if the mountains were so near as to be only two or three miles off. Indeed, the distances here were deceptive. At Abercrombie Pass Station, a meal would be served the passengers and coachmen. The meals were usually prepared by individuals who, if cleanliness was next to godliness, they would stand but a little chance of getting into heaven. It has been said that every man must eat his peck of dirt, and most of the passengers felt that it was through the American Southwest that they ate their share. To the unknowing passenger, once the stage had reached the summit, he expected it to start down the other side of the mountain. But this was not the case, as once through the pass, the stage road opened onto a broad plateau which stretched all the way to Fort Chadburn. By Thursday, the 23rd of September, the stage arrived at the fort, which was situated exactly on the 32nd parallel of latitude, and according to its schedule, the stage was nearly 24 hours ahead of its timetable. So far, 955 miles of stage journey had been traveled, and no major accidents had yet occurred. There were but a few houses at Fort Chadburn and fewer inhabitants. Nevertheless, there was an enthusiastic welcome given by the soldiers and civilians present. Because of the stage's arrival, the men at the fort decided to have a good time of it by firing their weapons into the air. And as one passenger said, he felt that he survived the ordeal that followed only by special dispensation of divine providence, for the mules reared themselves, then pitched, twisted, whirled, wheeled around, stood still, and cut up all sorts of capers. The stage in which the passenger was sitting seemed to perform so many evolutions that he felt that it was the end of the line for him. After getting the mule settled down, the stage once more moved out. The route from Fort Chadburn was clear and straight as it led across a boundless prairie where the parched grasses glistened in the sun as far as the eye could see. About 55 miles from Fort Chadburn, the stage arrived at the headwaters of the Concho River on Saturday, the 25th of September at 2.30 a.m. The easy part of traveling was over, as now the journey commenced its difficulties. From now on, the stage had to carry its own water as it headed toward the great 
Estacado. This was the great stake plain. It derived its name from the tradition of the Spaniards, who had many years before crossed the great plain. So they would not get lost, they staked out the road, and the stakes acted as a guide. The plain was 175 miles long and was entirely without wood or water. Thoughts of terror would cross the mind of the traveler as in his imagination he could see himself stranded here, suffering the pangs of thirst. But at long last the stage rolled into a place called Mustang Springs, where water was in abundance. Once well supplied with water, the traveler would brace himself for another 75 miles of desert. Yet, even though it was dry, the road was hard and smooth. It was literally baked hard by the scorching sun and thusly enabled the stage to move along at a good clip. The stage moved leisurely through the desert and every now and then a refreshing, decidedly cool and delicious breeze would caress the traveler, thus making the trip a little more pleasant. Yet, drivers had to stay alert to make sure that nothing happened to his animals or the coach, and to remind him of the horrors of this part of the trip, in silent witness to nature's eternal laws, there were bones of animals strewn along the way. By 3 a.m. on Sunday the 26th of September, the stage reached the muddy waters of the Pecos River, and if the stage would have stopped long enough, everyone would have gone for a swim, just to get wet. After leaving the Pecos River, the weary passengers and the stage continued on the long, dusty road, with both man and animals inhaling a constant cloud of dust as they went jolting along. By nightfall, the stage approached Pope's Camp Station. With moonlight falling on the Guadalupe Mountains 60 miles away on the other side of the station, the traveler was treated to a beautiful sight. The mountains in the distance looked like an ancient fortress covered with towers and embattlements. After taking on new horses and some supper of sour bread, coffee, dried beef, and raw onions, the next leg of the trip would be 60 miles to the Guadalupe Mountains. By sunup, the stage was 30 miles from its destination. So, to rest the animals, the driver would stop and have some breakfast right along the road. A fire would be built, but since there was no wood, dried buffalo manure, called buffalo chips, would be used as firewood to heat the coffee and fry some bacon. Wormy crackers were also to be had from the traveler's packs. If a person's stomach was rather delicate, he would find that on a long trip like this, it did not remain delicate for long. Finally, the stage got to Pinery Station, which was near the top of the Guadalupe Mountains, where time and weather had cut a gorge. Nature saved all of her ruggedness to make the Guadalupe Peak, as it rears its head 4,000 feet above the level of the plain and 7,000 feet above sea level. With a fresh team, the stage took off down the 60-mile ride through the Guadalupe Canyon. The grandeur of the canyon was beyond description. The drivers, however, never had time to enjoy the view anyway, as the road winds down steep and stony grades, with rocks jolting the stage almost into the abyss of the canyon. The passengers usually held their hearts in their mouths, 
looking at one moment into the canyon abyss and the next moment at the huge boulders which hung above them and which looked as if they would fall if touched by a drop of rain. By sunset, the stage was through the pass, and as one looked back over his shoulder, he would see the sun lighting up the jagged peaks. With darkness falling upon the group on the first stage heading west, things were now in pitch black of night. All of a sudden, there was a great noise and a bouncing light appearing before them. It, it, it was, to everyone's astonishment, the first overland mail stage, which had left San Francisco on the 15th of September. It was carrying five passengers and was eight hours ahead of its schedule. The stages stopped and everyone was talking, it seemed, at the same time. They all exchanged congratulations and told each other bits of news. Then, after a restful moment, the stages departed, each heading its own way. Sometimes, as the novelty of the trip wore off, the passenger would doze off, but never for long, because a jolt, shout of a driver, or the noise of changing horses at a station would awaken him again. After a while, however, sheer exhaustion forced the traveler to accept noise and all as he slept. The only other alternative to this was to stop at one of the stations and to rest up for a day or two, and then board the next coach heading west. But this was risky business giving up your seat, because there was no assurance that there would be any room for a passenger on the next stage. Sometimes a person could be marooned for a month until he could find a seat on another coach. Then, too, one had to prepare himself for the fact that the thoroughbraces of the coach might snap. When this happened, it would scatter riders, mail, and baggage all over the place. The same would happen if an axle broke. But since the people of that generation were just about used to everything, the discomfort would be taken in stride. In the adobe-built station houses, the dirt outside the hut was cleaner than that inside on the dirt floors. Not only did the traveler get used to the dirt at each stop, but he also became accustomed to the interior of each station, which was thick with black flies. The furnishings, too, were primitive, as they consisted of a rickety table surrounded by boxes which were used as chairs. There were a few bunks here and there, if you wanted to lay down and rest but these were usually full with fleas. In the corner of the station was a grease-encrusted stove, a bowl with a pitcher of water nearby, and a bar of brown soap for those who felt they would like to wash up a bit. The meals served at most of the stations on this part of the trip were usually the same. Tough beef or fried pork, cooked in a grimy skillet, coarse bread, mesquite beans, and a mysterious concoction which was called slumgullium. No one ever knew what went into it, but since it didn't kill the eater, it would pass as food, fit for consumption. And the black coffee, well, it looked as if it was some kind of lethal acid. If the passenger survived the food through this part of the country, he could survive almost anything, even Indian raids. For, through western Texas and Arizona, the Indians might sweep down upon the coach in a moment's notice. When they did, the driver would whip the horses and try to outrun them, while the passengers would cower on the floor of the coach. During the time the Butterfield Overland stage was in operation, ten drivers lost their lives to the attacks by Apache and Comanche Indians. 
By 4.30 a.m. on Thursday the 30th of September, the stage arrived at El Paso near the Rio Grande River. After the long ride over the desert, the traveler was treated to the aroma of fruit growing somewhere in the fertile valley. With but a brief rest, the stage headed now into the New Mexico Territory. It went through the Mesilla Valley, which was part of the Gadsden Purchase. Once the stage left this fertile area, it started over a series of deserts without water once again. The route also went over the Picasso Pass, which was so steep that the passengers had to get out and walk practically all the way over it. By the 1st of October, the stage neared the Membrus River, and here they met the second stage that had left San Francisco. Across New Mexico and on through Arizona, the stage rumbled, and on Saturday the 2nd of October, at 9.30 p.m., the stage rolled into Tucson. They had come a long way, but there was still 1163 miles left to go before the stage would get to San Francisco. Leaving Tucson, the stage headed west as it followed the Gila River to Fort Yuma. Fort Yuma is located near the Colorado River, and here the stage was put on a flatboat and ferried across the water. Once across the Colorado River, the stage was in California. But this part of California was not green with vegetation. Instead, it was a great desert region. Here, one could expect to encounter heavy sandstorms, where the sand shifted and in places covered the road entirely. Water was scarce, but those water holes that were available saw the stage route heading its way. There was the new river, which would have running water in it right in the middle of the desert. It started from what appeared to be nowhere, ran a few miles and then disappeared into nowhere. Sometimes it would have running water in it during the heat of summer, and then all of a sudden, as quickly as the water started to flow, it ceased. Next on the route came a place called Palm Springs. It was a beautiful spot, a perfect oasis in the desert. From this point on, the passenger on the stage began to see more vegetation as the road was now nearing the coast of California and Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, there were about 4,000 inhabitants. Fruit was in abundance, as were luscious grapes which were made into premium wines. From Los Angeles, the stage headed northward on the last leg of its 2,800-mile journey. It rolled past some of the missions which had been built during the pioneer days of California by the Padres and the Indians. Then the route went over Tejan Pass, through Grapevine Canyon, and into the Central Valley of California. Through the San Joaquin Valley, the stage pushed until it got to Fresno City, which consisted of two houses. Then the San Joaquin River was crossed at a place called Firebaugh's Ferry. The ferry had been established by Andrew Fireball in 1854. Not only did Fireball establish the ferry across the San Joaquin River, but he is also the person who constructed the Pacheco Pass Road. This is a road which takes the traveler out of the Central Valley of California and puts him into the fertile Santa Clara Valley at a place called Gilroy. People thereabouts were as excited as they could be to see the first westbound stage arrive. And, with a change of horses, the stage headed north to San Jose, which was the oldest city in California. From San Jose, the road to San Francisco was in good shape, as the route had already been laid out and traveled by folks who lived on the peninsula. 
They referred to the road as the El Camino Real, the King's Highway. As sunrise came over the city of San Francisco on October the 10th, the first Butterfield Overland Mail stage came rolling in from the south. It was Sunday morning as the stage struck the pavements of the great city. The journey was over, completed, finished, and it had been accomplished in just 23 days and 23 and a half hours. There were cheering crowds on hand for this momentous moment in San Francisco, and 2,800 miles to the east, the first eastbound stage had arrived in Tipton, Missouri. The great feat had been accomplished. John Butterfield had bridged the continent with his overland mail stages. Eventually, the fanfare and the shouting died down, and the Butterfield overland mail and passenger operations settled into a routine but never dull task of providing regular service over nearly 3,000 miles of the unsettled American West. For the next year, things went well for the Butterfield Overland Stage Company, and Butterfield made plans and efforts to improve the overland mail service. He was even laying plans for a daily schedule when he suffered a physical breakdown in 1860. This forced him to give up his duties as president of the company, and he was succeeded by William B. Dinsmore, who did not have Butterfield's drive to make the line work. The standards of discipline and efficiency instituted and maintained under Butterfield were relaxed, and from that time on there was a noticeable decline in the general morale of the operating force, especially on the eastern part of the line. There, old-time employees were replaced by inferior men. Then as 1861 approached, the political situation in the United States dealt a death blow to the great enterprise started by John Butterfield. Southern states seceded from the Union, and when they did, the southern part of the stage route through Texas was blockaded. Furthermore, the Confederates confiscated Butterfield's stock and equipment at the stations in their territory. It was evident when the hostilities between the North and the South took place that the government could no longer subsidize the Butterfield Overland Mail. True, the stage people did establish a central route to the West Coast, but it never proved to be as efficient or as successful as was the Butterfield Southern Route. The significances of the Butterfield Overland Mail to the West Coast are many. For one thing, the idea of having a Pacific Republic, which would be free and independent from the rest of the country, evaporated. California, Oregon, and Washington would become welded to the Union because of the stage line. Furthermore, no other thing in its brief and spectacular period of existence proved to be a benefactor in the development of the regions it traversed, as did the Butterfield Overland Stage. During its existence, populations doubled in many places along its route, and for a quarter of a century after its abandonment, the route laid out by John Butterfield continued to be the main artery for east-west traffic. The stations, which were abandoned, still provided travelers with water in desert regions and shelter from storms. Even the railroad builders profited from the labors of the Butterfield road builders, as the railroads established their grades in many places in the very ruts of the overland mail route. With the coming of the automobile, Travelers still found that the best all-year route by car from east to west was along the highways which would follow the Butterfield Overland Stage route. 
And if you are one of those adventurous persons who would rather drive across this vast country by automobile, you can still travel the entire 2,800-mile route John Butterfield laid out, and your interest will never flag, for you will find plains of abundance, plateaus of scenery, deserts teeming with plant and animal life, mountain passes prolific in grandeur, and fruitful valleys, as did your forefathers before you.